If you will take your Bibles and open them to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Let me look at Genesis chapter 2 today. And I'm going to read from uh, beginning with verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to, the water, to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's Word. You can have a seat. So two weeks ago, we learned that the foundation of everything that we do as a church, local church, global church, we could say Catholic, little c, universal church, everything we do as the church, the body of Christ, the, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the Bible. Everything. Every circumstance, every question, every decision that we will ever come in contact with, we can find the answer to either explicitly spelled out or implicitly deduced from the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Everything. And so we have to study the Bible. We have to go to it and learn from it. You know, when, when Jesus reprimanded the Sadducees, remember He, he, he told see that they didn't believe in the resurrection. He told them their problem was that they didn't know the Scriptures. Well, when you read in the Bible, in the Old Testament, which is what they would have had, it doesn't really directly say there will be a resurrection. The reference he used was God being the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, men who had died. Implicitly spelled out there is the fact that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The problem was 
They had read it, they just didn't study deep enough. It takes in-depth study of the Bible. So a lot of times the questions that we have and, and the problems that we want to answer or the, the, the problems that we have that we're looking for an answer to, it's not just explicitly spelled out. You can't just turn to the concordance and, and look up college or look up spouse or whatever and it's just there. You have to read the Bible from cover to cover engulf yourself and develop yourself into a biblical worldview so that then everything that you look at and every question that you have and every circumstance is shaped by the Bible. You begin to think God's thoughts after Him. You, it's just It becomes natural. That was week one. Everything comes from the Bible. Then last week, we began to look at our origins and we asked the question, where do we come from and why does it matter? Very basic foundational truth that God created all human beings in His image for His glory. And so, if God created us, which is what the Bible teaches, I guess I should say, since God created us, and He created us in His image, and He created us for His glory, then we have no right to just say, well, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. Like James says, we should say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. We are obligated as the clay to live as the potter has designed. And this design, as we, we learned in our small groups, this design is not burdensome. See, a lot of times we think, you know, oh no, I'm going to have to start living this way and start doing that and start doing this. And we think this is going to be burdensome. This is going to be difficult and, and this is just really going to put a, a strain on things and, and it may be difficult and the world is definitely going to look at you like you're strange, but it's not going to be burdensome. It's going to be a delight and a joy because this is how God created you to be. So That was the last two weeks. Now today we begin to look at the different roles that God has given us. Remember, when we looked at Genesis 1.27, it says God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. So we're going to start looking at male and female over the next several weeks. Male and female. And the title of the sermon today is God's Design for Men. God's Design for Men. Now what I want to do like last week, is I just want to, first of all, attack the culture, just tear down everything they've told us, and then I want to build back up, just use God's Word and build back up what God has given us. Build back up a picture of man that God has given us. So, I've divided the, the cultural categories into three. There's, there's probably more. This is not completely exhaustive. But I'll put them into three categories. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm going to list some things here. If I say one of these things, that doesn't mean if one of these things is in your life, it's sinful. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, these things become a problem when, number one, they are taken to define your manhood... Or number two, if a man fits into one of these categories and it defines him. The three categories. 
Three categories that the culture says, this is acceptable for a man, or this is what we should expect of men. Three categories. The feminine man, the childish man, and the chauvinist man. Or I guess you could say chauvinistic. Feminine, childish, and chauvinistic. And culture says, this is absolutely normal. It's okay. So the feminine man. The feminine man is usually weak and timid and just overall girly. There's no other way to put it than girly. In, in younger stages, you go to the mall, you see them, you say, is that a boy or a girl? Don't know. I can't tell. Got their hair like a girl, clothes like a girl, walk like a girl, looks like a girl. We don't know. Then they, and when we think that might be kind of strange, then they grow up and we've created a category. And it's called metrosexual. He just takes care of himself. He's, he's, he's groomed and he's, he's proper. Now, there's nothing wrong with being clean. And I'm not saying don't be clean and don't take showers. But this type of guy just spends too much time. It's, it's feminine in the way that he primps himself. And, and like I said, we've, we've invented this category where it's, it's okay for a grown man to act like a woman. We would say he's in touch with his feminine side. There's no such thing as a man with a feminine side. You're either a male or a female. These types of guys are interested in girly things. Uh, we have men who are called stay-at-home dads. Again, Scripture knows of no such category. Culture has told us that nowadays there's no difference between a man and a woman except for our outward appearance. And Bruce Jenner says you could just go to the doctor Find a good surgeon and you can fix that and become a woman. And it doesn't matter how much you mutilate your body or inject chemicals into your body, a man will never be a woman and a woman will never be a man, ever. You can look like one, but a man will never be a woman and a woman will never be a man. Now, what does the Bible say about the feminine man? Well, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, act like Men. I think that's pretty clear. Act like men. Now, how could he say that if there's no real distinction between how a man acts and how a woman acts? And we know the answer is there is a distinction. Men act like men and women act like women. We know that. That's clear. So that's the feminine man. Culture says, though, he's just, he's just a little feminine. It's okay. No, it's not okay. Then there's the childish man. Culture says this is normal. It's okay for him to be. This is what you should expect from guys, from men. The childish man usually remains immature. We've invented a category again called adolescence. You know, in the Bible, you're either a boy or you're a man, but we've invented adolescence, which extends from about the age of 11 till about the age of 42, where you can just kind of act like you know, maybe a boy, maybe a man, nobody's really sure. Sometimes you shave and maybe you can sire a child, but in your spare time, you're just immature. So they, they continue in their love for childish things. Video games. Obsession over sports. I didn't say sports are bad. I said obsession over sports. 
Hobbies. Oh, they just got to have a hobby. Got to have something to do. Something to fondle in their hands. Too much time on their hobbies. They're usually ignorant. If you watch the sitcoms, this is the sitcom dad. He's just an idiot. He can't do anything. Now, if you watch old sitcoms, the kids would get into trouble and they'd make a mess of something and then by the end of the show, the parents have to teach them a moral lesson about how to live and how to act. That was the old sitcom. Well, nowadays... The parents are the idiots who don't understand anything. They don't understand how the world works. And the kids have to teach them how things really are. See, we've we've reversed the roles where kids are teaching the parents, and that's backwards. Because we've created this, this ignorant dad. The childish man usually has no initiative, no leadership abilities, usually has either no job or no work ethic. If he does have a job, he is terrible at it. No drive to do anything beyond the least bit of requirement. He's just not able to grow up. He can't grow up and be a man. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And when we read that, we learn there are things children do and there are things men do. And those are not the same. They're not the same thing. Now, as a dad, I might do some stuff with my child, but, but his hobbies and my hobbies are not the same. We don't do the same things. Because a man has grown to the point where he understands that there are weightier matters in life. See, a kid, they don't understand what's serious, what really matters, what's important. They can, their mind can just be engulfed in a fantasy world with a controller because they don't know any better. But a man knows there's more to the world than this and I need to be thinking about serious things. And so he puts away the childish things. And then there's the chauvinist. The chauvinist is the guy who's almost always aggressive. This is like the, the super manliest type of man. Shows almost no soft emotions. Shows no regard for the weak. He uses strength and power to try to intimidate other people. This is the guy who has to have a big truck with big tires and, and loud exhaust. He has to annoy everybody around him or he doesn't feel like a man just get on people's nerves all the time he has to be into he has to be shooting something fighting somebody watching an action movie or he doesn't feel like a man and paul says again first thessalonians 2 7 but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children notice he says like a nursing Mother. So, according to Scripture, there are times when men should be gentle and caring and nurturing. But, but the culture says that this is to be expected. It's okay for a man to be feminine. We should expect men to be boyish and childish and just immature. We should expect men to be manly men and, and just, just, just drip testosterone everywhere they go. And with that being pumped into our brains, we need men. We we need real men. As a church, we need real, biblically defined men. Now, 
Why is it important that we have biblically defined men? Well, it's because we believe in multi-generational faithfulness and multi-generational discipleship. Our goal is to advance the gospel, to spread God's kingdom, and expand His kingdom, and spread His glory over the face of the earth. And that's not just in our 80 years. If we just do it for our time on the earth and we're done, we've, we've done nothing. We want it to continue on to our children and our grandchildren and, our, and, our, and, and so on. We want it to be beyond our generation. Multi-generational discipleship. Here's the problem. This is from 2002, so the statistics are probably worse. 2002, 70% of teens involved in church youth groups and 88% of the children raised in evangelical homes leave the church by the time they're 18 years old. And, and we would say, and the faith. They, they, they walk away from the faith, therefore they were never Christians. Between 70 and 88%. That was in 2002. So, between 7 and close to 9 out of 10, raised in the church, raised in Christians' home, never saved. Never Christians. Okay. Add to that our utter disdain for children as Christians. We've, we've, our birth rates have plummeted to where evangelicals have just under two children per family, just like the rest of the world, just under two children per family, then add to that the fact that even those who remain in the church, only about 10% of them actually have a biblical worldview, which means they're going to teach their children, they're going to make disciples of their children. The statistics say that, again, as of 2002, it will take two Christian families in this generation, to get one Christian into the next generation. So that means you've got four parents who each have two kids. You'll have one Christian in the next generation. We, that, that's unacceptable. We don't want that. Now, we, we say, well, we'll just share the gospel. But we don't. We don't share the gospel. Let's not fool ourselves and act like we share the gospel. Uh, I forget the statistic, the, the, it's something along the lines of uh, uh, one salvation for every 30 to 40 Southern Baptists, uh, our evangelistic uh, numbers, we don't share the gospel. We, we want a healthy next generation. And so we need healthy families. We've got to get these kids that for some reason they're raised in Christian, home, in Christian homes, but they're not saved. They're not Christians. We want them to be saved. We want them to be born again so that they don't walk away by the time they're 18. And so if we want healthy families, then we need healthy, godly men to lead those families. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about the duties of the men as it pertains to the family. We're going to layer on top a wife, and we're going to layer on top children, and we might layer on, layer on top the church. But today, we're just going to begin at creation. We're just going to talk about being a male. No, no wife, no children, just, just a man. How has God designed a man to live and act from what we see here in the garden? And hopefully, men, as I'm talking, you'll, you'll feel the implications as it would pertain to a family and to a wife and, and these things. 
But I'm not going to address it specifically. You, you'll feel it. So look at our passage. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the garden, and a mist, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the garden, then the Lord formed the man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now remember... Verses 5 through 25 of chapter 2 are an expansion of chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So Moses wrote chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, he says, I'm going to go into more detail about day 6. So then we come here to verse 5, and we read, there's no bush of the field in the land, no small plant. And that sounds like a contradiction. If we know our creation, we would say, well, I thought plants were created on day three. But here we're on day six. There's no bush in the field. There's no plant in the field. There's a contradiction here in the creation story. There's a contradiction in the Bible. We can't trust the Bible. The Bible is not God's Word. Throw it away. We have no faith at all. We We can't trust at all. Any of it. Well, let's fix that. And I'll show you why this matters. If you'll notice on day 3, it says, this is what God said, verse 11 of chapter 1, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, according to its kind on the earth. That's what God made on day 3. Plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed seed, each according to its kind. Here it says there's no bush of the field, no small plant of the field. Now these are different kinds of plants, and they're different words in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the bush of the field would have been plants that had within them grains, and these grains would have required human cultivation, work. They would have required someone to come along and and work the ground and work the grain and and irrigate the land so that they would grow and so you could use these grains for food. When it says no small plant of the field, the Hebrew word here is a plant that usually brings with it thorns. So you have plants that would yield grain that require cultivation, they're not there yet. And you have plants that would bring with them thorns, they're not there yet. And notice he says, there's no bush of the field, no small plant of the field, for, or the reason, that there was no bush and there was no plant, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain, and there was no man. No rain, no man. So when Moses is writing here, chapter 2, He's anticipating some things that are going to happen in the future that if you were just reading it straight through, you wouldn't know what's going to happen. He's anticipating two things. Number one, there will be a man, which is in the next verse. And number two, there will be a fall of man. There's going to come a man, and this man's going to fall into sin. Now, what can we learn about the fall? Well, we know the fall is going to bring thorns, and the fall is eventually going to bring rain on the earth with the flood. 
What can we anticipate about the man from these verses? Again, if we just read verses 5 and 6, there's no man yet, but what can we learn about the man? Well, we learn that this man will work. Before the fall, before sin, before curse, Moses is leading the reader. He's, he's sort of hugging them along and implying that this man that he creates is going to be a worker, an agricultural man, a man of the land. He will work. First thing, he will work. In verse 7, we're reminded from last week that this man would have remained a lump of dirt if God had not breathed into him supernatural power and caused him to be a living being. So, after last week, lest we get on our high horse and start parading through town and saying, I bear the image of God. I bear the image of God. Give me dignity. Give me value. And we begin to, to give to ourselves something that we really don't deserve or more than we deserve. Moses reminds us we are made of dirt. Men, what is a male? What is a man? A man is scooped up dirt, breathed with the supernatural power of God, and imprinted with the image of God. That's a man. So, a biblical man that God has designed will remember this. Not in some false humility with his shoulders drooped, well, I'm just dirt and I'm no good. No, a biblical man remembers. His Creator, and He remembers He is God and I am not. He is God and I came from dirt. I am from the dust and to dust I shall return. He knows His place. He is submissive to His Creator. See, there is dignity and there is value in being in the image of God, but it is not a dignity and a value that we take for ourselves and claim for ourselves and say, give me dignity and give me value. It's a dignity and value that we take and immediately point to our Creator. And a biblical man designed by God knows this. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now notice, again, there's no woman yet. No, no female presence whatsoever. A lot of times when we read Genesis 1, and, and that's our creation account, is Genesis 1, we forget that there was a period when there was no man. Even if it was only a few hours, there was a period when there was no woman. It was just a man in the Garden of Eden, bearing God's image by himself, and this is him. God makes this garden. He puts the man in the garden. And God, it says, out of the ground, made to spring up trees that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, to whose sight would they be pleasant? Whose food would they be, would they be good for? He's talking about the man. He made the garden to be a pleasure and a delight to the man. We know that the earth has been created, the whole globe is created as the specific habitation of us, of human beings. 
Isaiah 45, 18 tells us that God formed the earth to be inhabited. Psalm 115, 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The earth was created to be our home. That's why all of creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The glory of the sons of God. Romans 8. When we are glorified, we're going to have to have a new planet because this planet can't hold a glorified human race. So the earth is made for man. But specifically here, it's made for His pleasure and His delight. The God's design for this man all by Himself is that He take pleasure and He take delight in the works of His Creator. But not just He doesn't stop there and just say, well, I love food and I like looking at good stuff. No, it, it, it is a pleasure and a delight that leads Him to worship His Creator. It's a means of worship to God. We're not to be obsessed with the contrivances of other men. Things that men invent and, and, and conjure up in their minds and those become the most glorious things to us. We should be the most enveloped and the most excited and the most delighted about the things God has created. The things God has given us. And the things God has revealed to us in His Word. And this is the way God has designed us to be. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, usually when we read this, we just kind of blow over it really quickly, or we read it really slowly with a globe or the maps in the back of our Bible to try to figure out where the Garden of Eden would be. And we imagine going there someday and trying to figure out where this is in the world. And we don't notice what Moses puts in this section and, and why would he include the things that he included here. Notice that he says, he, he references gold, bdellium, and onyx stone. We know gold is a metal. Would, would later be used for money, would be used for decoration, would be used for jewelry, would be used to lavish and overlay the things in the temple, the tabernacle. Bdellium was a, a gum that would be used for perfumes, make people smell good. Onyx is a stone that would be polished and used for jewelry, used for pottery, used for decorations and things like that. Again, this stuff is in the ground, in the dirt, in the earth that God has made to be inhabited by this man that He's made in His image. It didn't have to be there. There's nothing that we need from these things. So what we learn here is that God was not just assuming that men would just be gardeners forever. That every time another man came along, He would just get in line and they would all just go down, you know, hoeing their rows in the garden. That's all they would ever do is just hoe rows. No. Man is going to expand. And He's going to grow in His knowledge. He's going to push His borders. 
He's going to use the land and the resources that God has given him to his delight. He's going to make it useful. He's going to, in innumerable ways, use gold and, and bdellium and onyx stone. We can name all of the metals and the things that we dig out of the earth and use as our means of having dominion, taking over the earth. It's our earth. Whenever we get to the point where the earth is something that takes us over, we, we, we've gone contrary to God's design. So we learn that the biblical man, all by himself, as God has designed him, is a man who is intuitive. And he is driven. Now this doesn't mean that he's an entrepreneur in, in our modern sense of the term. Like he has to be some sort of a businessman. But it is the opposite of the modern sitcom dad who, who just, he's lazy and he's sits around drinking beer, obsessed with football. He can barely stay off the couch long enough to keep his job. And you, mom has to come home from her job every day and smack him on the head and get him to get up and do something. Now that's, that's not the biblical man. The biblical man is driven and he, he looks for things to do and he, he looks for ways that he can use what he's been given to advance his race. He will do these things because God has made him this way. Nobody's here telling Adam, hey Adam, won't you get to work and do something? He just does it. He's created for it. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Stop there. Now remember, this is before the fall, before sin, before the curse. So many people are very quick to say, oh, no, 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 no. I shouldn't, man, I hate my job and I should because it's a curse. No, this is before the fall. And Adam had a job. He's placed in the garden, the garden that was made just for him. And it says, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it for the purpose of working it and keeping it. Working and keeping a garden. Now to work it, is, is the, the word could literally mean to toil the ground. He, he's, 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 he, or, or to till the ground. He's, he's turning the soil over. He's working the ground. Get what's underneath, flip it over on top, work the ground. Get it ready for, for seeds. And then to keep it is to look after it, to, to tend to it, to observe it, to protect it, to watch over it. Now, this is pre-fall labor. It's not burdensome. Adam doesn't get up and drag himself into work every day and, and mope around his job. He delights in his work. Now, think about this. Let's just picture this man. Picture Adam. Picture and imagine the character traits of a man, a perfect, sinless man created by God for the purpose of working and keeping a garden. Now, he's going to have to have a good work ethic because he's perfect. To keep a garden, that requires attention to details. You've got to, you've got to know what you're looking for. You've got to know what a good leaf is, bad leaf is. You've got to pay attention to things. You've got to have a caring attitude and a delight towards the object of your work. You have to actually care about the plants, whether they, whether they flourish and grow or whether they're not doing so good. You have to be able to be calm and work 
around little shoots of plants. You can't just trample all over them. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. And again, all of this without a female presence. All of this, with, there's no mother figure pulling Adam's ear saying, all right, come on now, you know, get in the rows, watch where you're walking, idiot. No, he, he's, he's perfect. He can do this perfectly because he was designed for it and he's great at it. Again, how, how contrary is this to the modern accepted views of men that we, we say, no, it's perfectly fine for a man to be that way. Oh, he's just a little feminine. He, he, feminine. He, he wouldn't have been able to get his hands dirty. Or you'd be come over here and get to work because he's so busy with the ladies, you know, making headbands out of flowers. The feminine man. Or the childish man, he can't focus long enough to work in a garden. He's ready to get on, he's ready to fondle a controller or himself because he's too busy or he's, his mind is everywhere else because he can't pay attention to one single thing because he's thinking like a child. Or you got the chauvinist who's just ready to get onto something manly. Let's do something manly, man. Let's, let's make this pile of dirt into a pile and blow it up. You know, he's got, a, got something to prove all the time. And the world says, this is, this is a man. This is how a man should be. When we read this, this is a man created by God, perfectly sinless, doing exactly what God has created him to do. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Notice what we have here. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. We have a positive command. Eat of all the trees. And then we have... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That's a negative command. Here's what you will do. Here's what you will not do. And then we have a promise of death upon disobedience. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we can assume a promise of life. If he doesn't disobey, he will live. I think it's safe to assume that. So we have a positive command, a negative command, a promise of death upon disobedience, and a promise of life upon obedience. What do we have here? We have a covenant. We have a biblical covenant. Now, I, you can see there's no word covenant here in the text. It's not written here. We don't, we don't have to have the word covenant for it to be a covenant. If you've ever read the Bible, you know that these are all the ingredients that come together to make a covenant. This is the first covenant that God ever makes with a man. This is what we call the covenant of works or the Adamic covenant. If you have a, a pen or you want to circle it, underline it, write it there, this is the covenant of works, the very first covenant that God made with a man. And the stipulations are easy. Obey and live, disobey and die. God gives this word of the covenant to the man before the woman is ever created. And it is assumed, we know later, the man will have to relay the word of the covenant to his wife. And give that information to her. Now again, when we read in the Bible, what do we know about covenants and the one to whom God gives the word of the covenant? 
people all throughout Scripture and all of the covenants, whether it's here, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, the covenant, the new covenant made in Christ, the one that receives the initial word of the covenant from God, and He is the one that, that gives the word to those in His care or in His family, He is the representative of the group. He's at the helm. He's at the head. He represents all of those that the covenant is going to go to. So the, the ultimate success or failure of the group is going to come back to Him. The covenant will be named for Him. That's why it's the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant. It's named after Him because God made it to Him. And if they fail, those after Him, they will be punished for their sin, but it will ultimately come back on His shoulders. As long as He's living, He will give an account. He stands as the, at the head as the representative of those who are His. And this is the role of man as God has designed him. So let's put all of this under some headings so that we can kind of get some structure on this. I want to use what we learned last week and I want to kind of build on top of it. So we'll kind of go through last week, last week real quickly and then we'll stepping stone from that to this week and then we're going to keep on layering on top of that over the next several weeks because men, we're not done. Next week we'll do the ladies. We'll talk about what it means to be a female and we'll build on top of that. So we're not done. This is not all of a biblical man, but these are just things that we learn pre-fall in the way God designed this man. The men. This is how God has designed us. In three points. Women, let men do their job. Expect them to do their job. Don't take their job from them. Don't let them do their, or don't, don't let them let you do their job. Children, young men, aspire to this. Prepare yourself for this. This is how God has made you to be. So number one, as a biblical man, you are created to bear God's image. This was last week. We relate to God. Remember who you are and who God is. Remember, you're made from dirt. You came from the dirt and you will go back to the dirt. And you were made to know God and to love God. Men, know God. That is your primary purpose. is to know Him, love Him, and glorify Him above everything else. That is your goal. Glorify God by knowing Him and loving Him, obeying His commands. To pursue a knowledge of God above everything else. Pursue the knowledge of God. Let's just think about all... And, and, and let's... It's really easy... This is what I want to clarify. It's really easy to say, Oh, man, I love God and I know God. I love God. Yes, I love God more than everything else. We say it, but then when we watch our lives, we don't live like we love God. And the way I can tell is, is because I can ask facts about, you name it, facts about the athlete, facts about the car, facts about the guns, facts about, you name it, all the facts we know, and we can spout them off. Boom, 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 boom. I can slide a piece of paper across the table with 66 lines and say, list the books of the Bible for me in order. And I wonder how many of us could do it. The books of the Bible. And we don't know this stuff. This comes from desiring to know God. To pursue a knowledge of God more than anything else. If everything else has to fall to the side, 
then it must fall to the side because a knowledge of God is our number one priority. Number one. And the way that we know that the other things have become idols in our lives is when we say, well, I'm not, I won't give it up. I don't have to give it up. I mean, I can keep that and still... What if God says, give it up? What if God says, sell all of your blank? Get rid of all of your whatever. Stop watching blank. Spend six months. Spend the month of March. Please, no, not the month of March. Oh, no, who's winning the game? Where's my bracket? Who's, where's my bracket? What if God says, take the month of March off of television and study my word? Memorize the books. Of, see, that's how we know that those things have become more important to us than God's word. We should know God and then love God above everything else. If he's got to come first. If we can think of something that we might not want to give up for God, then it might be an idol. And be very, I would say, tread lightly with those things because God may just take it and say, if you won't give it up, I'll just take it. So we are to relate to God. We are to relate to others. As men created in God's image and designed by God, we are to treat others with dignity and value, love the people around us enough to point them to our Creator, point them to their greatest good, point them to a knowledge of God in Jesus Christ, share the Gospel with them. That's how we love others. And then we relate to nature, the rest of creation. Delight in the creation as a means of worshiping God. Praise God for all that He's made and His inexhaustible wisdom and, and, and majesty just in the things He's made. We relate to nature by filling the earth, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. And we relate to nature by subduing the earth, which leads us to point number two. We bear God's image. Number two, we work for God's glory. Now we could spend weeks just building a biblical theology of work. But I'm not going to do that. We just hit some points here. This is really practical. Work for His glory. Listen, just work. You're made for work. You're, you're, you, men, you were made for work. From the very beginning, before the fall, before sin, you're made to work. It's not always fun because of the fall. It's not always enjoyable because of the fall. Sometimes you'll get hurt because of the fall, but you're made for work. So work. If you don't work, if you choose that at some point you're not going to work, that's when the problems start. From that point on, it's only downhill. So you're made to work. Have a good work ethic. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. That means work hard. Have a good attitude about your work. God created men to work, and that means all sorts of work. Don't be too good for some kind of work. It's somewhere in our minds, we, we have developed this attitude that, well, I'm too good for that or I'm too good for that. Listen, if you have to make money, you'll do whatever it takes. And you'll work because you were made for it. A part of having a good work ethic is what we said earlier, being intuitive and driven. Don't be lazy. Don't have to be babysat through every step of your job. So your boss has to hold your hand and walk you through it. Act like an adult. Work like an adult. Once you learn the job, pay attention to your job. Don't steal from your boss by focusing on all these other things when you should be focusing on your work. You're paid to focus on your work. 
So focus on your work. Some of you saw the quote that I put up earlier this week from Martin Luther. He said, a Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. If we're Christians, we don't, our job is not to be overly annoying about our faith at our job. That, that doesn't please God. Our job is to be good workers. Just be a good worker. And if you care that much about evangelism, you're going to make an impression on people and they're probably going to want to hang out with you outside of work. Or you can ask them to hang out outside of work and you can use your own time to be an evangelist. But at work, your job is to work. And if you have the time to sprinkle your conversations, do that. But don't be an annoyance and pull people away from their work and steal from your boss when you should be working. So pay attention to your work. When you're working, be calm when you need to be. Sometimes you've got to be fast and you've got to run and you've got to hustle, but other times it's okay to slow down and pay attention. And a clear-headed man knows the difference between when to walk between the rows of the new plants and when to hustle between the trees. He knows that. You've got to know this stuff. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. It's not always good just to fly through everything. This is all just incredibly practical stuff about being a good worker. The man of the world is usually so dead set on making money climbing the ladder, making the next big purchase, keeping up with the Joneses, or just punching the clock that he forgets his creator, forgets what he was made for. That's not what you were designed to do. At this point in the service, we had some technical difficulties, and I unplugged my microphone, and I wanted to... uh, read through my notes so that those who would listen to the podcast would be able to at least follow along and hear how the sermon concluded. We had just finished explaining uh, the first application point as we summarized all that we had studied is that God has created men to bear His image. We do this by relating to God, relating to others, and by relating to nature, the rest of creation. The second point Uh, was that we work for His glory, that we are to work, we are to have a good work ethic, and a part of having a good work ethic is being intuitive and driven, paying attention to your work, uh, being calm when you need to be, being fast when you need to be. And then the third point under having a good work ethic was to work as worship. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 tells us, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when we work, ultimately our paycheck comes from Christ. We're we're not working, laboring men, just for an earthly paycheck. We don't do our labors based on just how much we get paid, but we look to Christ as our ultimate boss man and we work to receive a paycheck when we die. The moment we breathe our last breath and our heart stops beating, then we will walk into our eternal reward and we will receive our inheritance for the labor that we've done. And so we should work always with this in mind. So we 
are created as men to bear God's image, to work for His glory, and thirdly, to represent according to God's order. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. Uh, We'll talk about the different roles that men have been given. But what we need to understand is that a biblical man is ready to stand and represent those whom God has placed in his charge. Now, that might be a wife, uh, that might be a family, that might be a church body, that might be a business, or that might be a nation. But we must understand that from a biblical perspective, God uses the headship system. He calls on men to stand and represent those that he has placed in their charge. And so men, you will give an account for how your wives grew spiritually under your leadership. If they grew spiritually without your help, you will be held responsible for that because you were supposed to lead them. It's not good just that they grew, but you must use the means that God has designed for their growth. Prevalent problem in the church is that there are women who strongly desire to be led spiritually, to grow spiritually. Women who hunger and thirst for the word, who who pursue outlets of of growth by listening to sermons, by reading blogs, by reading books and studying. Women and wives who care more about growing spiritually than their husbands care about leading them spiritually. And this is a grievous error, and it should not be. And men, you will be held responsible for this. It's not just that your wives grow, but that you lead them. You will be held accountable. Men, you will give an account for how your children grew spiritually under your care. Are you having regular family worship? Are you catechizing your wife and your children Are you making sure that your household understands and is applying God's Word and spiritual truths and biblical doctrines and these things? The hope would be that one day you can stand before God and proudly present your family before God, not have to hang your head in humility or humiliation because They didn't grow at all, or because they grew, but it was because of the leadership of someone else who had to take over your job because you were too busy or too caught up in other things. To tell God you didn't have enough time will not be an excuse on the last day. And also, I would hope that some of you would aspire to leadership in this local church. The Bible says that you desire a noble task. And you, as well as I, will stand and we will give an account someday for those souls who are and will be entrusted to the care of this church. It's a scary thing. But men, God has designed you to accept this challenge. So men, aspire to these tasks. Young boys, Prepare yourself for these tasks. Women and wives, expect your husbands to fulfill these tasks. Let them 
fulfill these tasks. Don't try to step in and take the job from them. Expect them to do it. And mothers and fathers, together prepare your young men to take these tasks when they get older. Now as we hear our roles as men to image God, to work for His glory, to represent according to His order, I hope that we all tremble at the thought. I hope that it makes us nervous. I hope that it even makes you question your calling and wonder, maybe I shouldn't have gotten married. Maybe I shouldn't have X number of children because you will give an account for everyone under your charge and this is how it should be. If you don't tremble, if you're not nervous, then you're probably not thinking about it correctly. And the reason that we should tremble is because we've all fallen short of God's design. Adam represented his entire race, and therefore when he sinned, we all sinned. The Bible tells us very clearly, in Adam, we all died. But the good news that is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can all be made alive again. So let's just take a moment and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Men, let's look to Christ. Women, wives, please look to Christ. Don't ever do your husband the disservice of looking to him to be the perfect man or to be your savior because he will not. We as husbands will always fall short. That doesn't mean that you don't expect us to fulfill a standard. But if you expect us to be perfect, we will always fall short. We must all look to Christ. And so when we look to Christ in the Scriptures, we, we learn that Jesus was not a childish man. Jesus didn't spend His adult years playing childish games and being foolish or wasting time obsessing over things that wouldn't amount to anything in eternity. When we read the scriptures, we learn that Jesus was in the synagogue giving Bible lessons when he was just a boy. Jesus was more of a man, by God's standard, when he was just a boy, than most of the grown men that I know. That's because Jesus knew when it was time to grow up. He knew when it was time to be about his father's business and to lay aside childish things. Jesus was... No chauvinist. He, he never had to prove himself or show that he was a manly man. We read of Jesus stopping and sharing the gospel with the Samaritan woman in a day when not only did Jews not associate with Samaritans, but women were regarded as barely higher than animals. And he spent the time talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus had many women who were a part of his traveling caravan. Jesus commanded that little children be allowed to come and to see him and to spend time with him so that he could lay his hands on them. And Jesus wept openly at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, although he knew very well that he was about to raise him from the dead. Jesus wept openly over his city, Jerusalem, because of their unbelief and their rejection of him as their Messiah. He was not a chauvinist. He had nothing to prove by way of manhood. And we also can learn from Scripture that Jesus was not a feminine man as the world tries to portray him in pictures and television. They try to portray Jesus as this 
metrosexual shampoo model. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was a first century carpenter. Yes, he worked with wood. Most probably he worked with stone most of the time. So his hands were probably rough and calloused and scarred. His arms were probably muscled and toned from close to 30 years of repetitious wood and stone work. It's interesting that we always see Jesus in our children's coloring books, and we color pictures of Jesus sitting with the children on his lap. And this is true. This was how Jesus lived. But we never see a picture in the children's coloring books of Jesus sitting on a rock and braiding together leather straps for his whip so that he could go and thrash the money changers out of the temple. It makes me wonder just how many ankles and toes were broken that day when this carpenter came in and started flipping stone tables over on people's laps because they made a mockery over his father's house. He lived out the Old Testament quotation, zeal for his father's house had eaten him alive. It had consumed him. Jesus was not a girly man. He was not a feminine man by any stretch of the imagination. Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of one of us, one of the creatures of the dirt. Jesus was driven in his entire life by the desire to do the will of his Father and did only that which he was commanded. Jesus lived his whole life as the second Adam, standing as our representative, perfectly meeting the demands of the covenant of works that Adam had broken. We are justified by works. It's just not our works. They are the works of Christ. The covenant of works said, Obey and live, disobey and die. We have disobeyed. Christ has obeyed. Christ died. And we live. He was not a girly man. And then one night, after eating a little bit of bread, drinking a little bit of wine, he prayed through the night. Then he stood a mock trial, had his face beaten, spit upon, had his beard pulled out, had his back ripped open by a Roman guard. And the Bible says that he would be beaten to a point where he was unrecognizable, but I guarantee you that no one asked, who is that woman? When they laid the Roman cross on his back and he carried it toward Calvary for our sin. You see, Jesus had no feminine side Jesus was a man by God's perfect design. Jesus had his physical image marred beyond recognition so that the image of God in us that has been disfigured by sin might be restored. And if that wasn't enough, now he intercedes for us daily, boldly representing every single one of his people as our great high priest. So men, we must look to Jesus. As our model women, we must look to Jesus. As our model children, we must look to Jesus. As our model lost sinner, you must look to Jesus. He is your only hope for salvation.
the biblical man looks to the God-man in repentance and faith. The biblical man is proud to admit, not I, but Christ. The biblical man humbly bows the knee in prayer. The biblical man will pound his chest, but not in some sort of ape-like dominance. He pounds his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Brothers, we must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must lead our families to Christ as well. This is the picture of man as God has designed him.